Well, welcome back. Happy New Year. Uh, My name is Matt, if you've forgotten. Uh, It's been a few weeks. So I am glad to be back with y'all this morning. Uh, We're going to begin a new series this week on the subject of heaven and hell. Uh, It's a huge topic. Uh, We're really going to spend about five weeks on the topic. Uh, I'll be gone next week. My wife and I are celebrating our anniversary, but then we will be continuing into early February uh, with this topic of heaven and hell. As I thought about the topic over the course of the uh, break, I thought, boy, what, what a critical and central topic for us to talk about from the scriptures. I'm not sure that there are a lot of subjects we could discuss that are really more central to what we believe and who we are as Christians. And yet, it's also a topic on which there is a whole lot of confusion. When we talk about heaven and hell, it doesn't take long for you to see in our culture that there are all kinds of ideas about heaven and hell, uh, some of them somewhat right, most of them quite wrong. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I turned on the TV and I was sort of surfing what was available on Netflix to watch, and I ran across a show called The Good Place. Now, some of you have probably seen the show. I'm not recommending it, uh, that you go watch it. If you have, we forgive you. Uh, But uh, I went ahead and because I knew I was talking about this topic, I thought I'm going to watch a few episodes of the show and just see what sort of ideas about heaven they are promoting. And uh, the story, most of you probably haven't seen it, the story centers around a young woman named Eleanor. She dies, she finds herself in heaven, but she finds herself in heaven mistakenly. Uh, The deal is that she was a terrible person during her life. She was selfish, she was rude, she was unkind, she was very self-centered, and a clerical error has happened in heaven, and she's found herself in the wrong spot. And she knows she's in the wrong spot. In fact, she knows she doesn't belong, and so the course of the series is her attempting to become a better person, even though she's already dead and in heaven, because she wants to merit the privilege of being there. Right, And as I saw it, I thought, man, so many familiar ideas about heaven that I see repeated in our culture over and over, one of which is that good people are the ones that go to heaven, right? You do enough good stuff, you get to heaven. You do enough bad stuff, you go to hell. But also their depiction of heaven itself. Heaven is actually a place, according to them, where all of your personal and fleshly desires are met. And I think that's often our perspective on heaven, movie after movie, TV show after TV show. So we want to spend the next few weeks unpacking what does the Bible actually say about heaven? And one of the things that might surprise you as we walk through the series is when we think about heaven, for most of us, the first thing we think about is what happens when you die. Where do you go when you die? And in fact, we're going to talk about that this morning. That's where we're going to start But in reality, the story of heaven in the scripture is a lot bigger than what happens when we die. The story of heaven and hell is a whole lot bigger because there's a story that goes even beyond what happens when we die all the way to what happens when Jesus comes back. And here's what we're going to see as we walk through. The heaven that we go to as Christians when we die or the hell that those that don't know Jesus go to, that's actually not the final destination. Right, But for most of us, the first time that we really think about these questions of heaven and hell is when somebody or something dies. 
right? For me, actually, one of my most memorable early experiences of death was not the death of a person. It wasn't the death of a family member. It was the death of a pet, most specifically a hamster, Harry the Happy Hamster. Uh, I loved that hamster. And uh, one day invited a friend into my room and, you know, hamsters don't actually live very long. They live a year and a half to two years at most. I looked that up on the internet. I wondered if maybe Harry had passed prematurely. Turns out he was right in there with the average life expectancy for a hamster. All right, but I invited a friend into my room and said, hey, I want you to see my hamster. And I walked in and I walked over to his habitat and Harry was not playful. Harry was not moving. Harry was gone. All right, I began to cry. My friend's mom took him home. It got really awkward after a moment. Right? But, but I actually, it's, it's, it's interesting to look back and, and I, I kind of laugh at that uh, little kid who was so sad about the loss of a hamster, but it actually raised all of these questions in my mind. What happened to him? Where did he go? Where is whatever force that was in Harry that animated him and made him run around that cage? Where is it? It doesn't seem natural. Those who have experienced death, whether the death of an animal or even more tragically, the death of a friend or a family member or somebody you know, you know this, death never feels right. It always feels awkward. It always feels painful. And I'll I'll say this, I've been at funerals for, for all ages of people, as have many of you, all the way from children, all the way up to the elderly. And I I will say this, not a single funeral has ever felt like this is what should happen. Because death always feels painful. And death always raises these questions. What happens now? Where's my friend? Where's my family member? Are they happy? Are they free from pain? Will I see him again? That's what we're going to talk about this morning as we dive into the scripture. Understandably, it's a huge topic in the Bible. The Bible has a great deal to say about death and what happens after we die. It's not only that it's one of the central issues of the Christian faith, it's one of the central issues of every belief system. Every single person even if you're an atheist, is going to have to grapple with the question eventually of what happens when I die. What does death mean? We're going to look at that from the scriptures and central to the Christian faith. This is where we're going to land this morning. The central hope ultimately of the Christian faith is this, that Jesus Christ defeated death. Death doesn't win, but Jesus wins. And this is why Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. We have hope because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Death is always tragic. Death is always sad. But for those who know Jesus Christ, We have hope because Jesus defeated death. And so what we're going to talk about then for a while this morning is this question. What happens when we die? And what are we anticipating even in the days ahead beyond death when Jesus returns? 
So the first thing that we find in scripture then, when we talk about what happens when we die, the first thing is this, that our spirit separates from our body, right? Our spirit separates from our body. Now, what I mean, obviously, is that you and I are designed to be an integrated whole. If you look back at Genesis chapter 2, you see in verse 7, when God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, it actually says God breathed into Adam's nostrils. He breathed into him the breath of life. The Hebrew word for breath is the same as the word for spirit, that God breathed his spirit into humanity so that we're designed actually to be an integrated body and spirit. We are meant to be bodily. We are meant to be spiritual. It all goes together. But when we die, there's a separation. Right? That's not the way it was intended to be. I was reminded this week when our oldest daughter was in about first grade. She came home one afternoon from school and she had done one of those projects that a lot of kids do where they had a, a body, you know, where they have put the organs, they've kind of pasted them onto the body so you can see the digestive system and the circulatory system and the nervous system and all of these systems of the body that they'd been working on for weeks. And it was full size. I mean, it was the size of a kid. And she walked into the kitchen and she said, Daddy, here's my body. And then she paused for a minute and she said, my brain is in my backpack. Because uh, what had actually happened was the brain, I guess, uh, came undone and it fell off the rest of the body. So she just shoved the paper brain into her backpack. All right, so here's my body. My brain is in my backpack. And I thought, what a strange thing to say. Right, it just occurred to me at that moment, what if that was our reality? that we held our brains over here and our spirits over here and our bodies over here, you'd go, that's not the way it's meant to be. We're not designed to be separated into these different parts. In fact, death itself is not considered in the scripture a normal part of life. It's actually a result of the curse. That because Adam and Eve sinned, God allowed a curse to fall on humanity. And you see this in Genesis chapter 3. God said to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. Because you disobeyed, Adam, cursed is the ground. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. We were designed to live as body and spirit, but what happens at death is our spirit separates from our body. It's not the way it was meant to be. Paul would describe death as an enemy in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, For Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. We're going to get into that concept further as we walk through the idea of heaven and hell in this series. But what Paul is saying is this, uh, death was not the way God intended it to be. And I think all too often when we are attempting to comfort those who are grieving, we imply that somehow death is simply a normal and natural part of life. But I think it's appropriate for us to say, now we grieve death because death is not the way it was meant to be. Death is because of the curse. And Paul says it's an enemy. And the great hope ultimately of the Christian faith is Jesus defeated the greatest enemy that most of us will face, and that is death. So we can go to death if we know Jesus unafraid. All right, so our spirit separates from our body and we face this enemy. Paul would also describe death, interestingly, as being 
naked. Being separated spirit and body, he describes as a form of nakedness. He says, for indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we don't want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. You see what he's getting at? We live in a body that we know is dying. Right? From the moment you are born, even as your body is growing, your body is dying. And, and we know that. I think often when we're young, we push it out of our minds. But as we age, we become more and more aware of the fact that this body is giving way. And we say, when this body gives way, what's going to happen? And Paul says, what I don't want to happen is simply to be unclothed, right? And in this passage of 2 Corinthians 5, he talks about that we will receive a resurrection body because we're not designed to be separated like that. It's a form of nakedness. Those of you who have kids, I'm going to guess that at some point while they were a baby or a toddler, you took pictures of them in the bathtub unclothed, right? And those pictures are cute. And you enjoy those pictures of their cute little baby bottoms. And you'll bring them out at their weddings for their friends and their future spouse. But, but, there's a point where it's not cute anymore. There's a point where taking those pictures isn't appropriate anymore. We recognize that we're meant to be clothed in the presence of others. That's how Paul describes death itself. It's uncomfortable. It's awkward and it's painful because it's not what's meant to be. And so he says we groan and we, we long for the hope of an eternal dwelling. We're going to talk about that concept specifically in a couple of weeks when we talk about the idea of what is heaven like specifically. And we're going to see that ultimately we will have heaven come to earth and those who know Jesus will be clothed with a brand new body, one that will not die. But in the meantime, when we die, our spirit separates from our body. And as we go further into the scripture, then we see here's what happens. Our spirit goes to one of two places, either to heaven or what's described in the scripture, in the New Testament in particular, as Hades. All right, they're one of two places. If you have a Bible, go to Luke chapter 16. Uh, I'm going to read a number of verses from Luke chapter 16 this morning, starting in verse 19. This is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Luke 16, starting in verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores, Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember 
that during your life you received your good things. And likewise, Lazarus, bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. I want to make a couple of comments about this passage. The first one is this, for Lazarus and the rich man, their their eternal destiny was determined at that point when they died. And in fact, Abraham, in his discussion here, makes that very clear. You can't cross over from one spot to another. The concept of purgatory is nowhere found in the Scripture. The idea that there's a place where I can earn my way into heaven by burning off my sin. The reality is the Scripture says that at the point of death, we go to one of two places. And as you read this passage carefully, what's interesting is it's not that the uh, rich man was rich and Lazarus was poor that determined where they ended up. You get the sense that the rich man had ignored what? The testimony of God in the Scriptures, of Moses and the prophets, and refused to believe what God said. And that's borne out actually in what he does, that every day he walked by Lazarus sitting at his gate, covered in sores with nothing to eat, and he walked back and forth and back and forth while Lazarus hoped in God. And at the time of their death, one goes to be with God and one goes to separation from God. There is no sense in the scripture, as much as we would wish it, there is no sense in scripture that after death there is another opportunity. There's no sense that we can go back and fix our decisions. That that desire that we all have finds its way, of course, into popular culture. A lot of you have seen perhaps the movie Groundhog Day from the 1990s with Bill Murray, where he has to go back and he has to repeat the same day, Groundhog Day, over and over and over again. And each time he does it, he tries to get it a little bit better and a little bit better and do the right thing until ultimately he escapes this loop of having to repeat it over and over and over again. Right? That's not a Christian concept. I don't know how many of you thought Groundhog Day was based on the Bible. It's not. You're going to have to do something else for your quiet times. It's a Buddhist concept. It's a Buddhist concept, the idea that I get successive runs at this life until I get it right and then I escape from the cycle of life and death, that I'm reincarnated over and over and over again. That's nowhere found in the Scripture. And instead we have a sense, as Hebrews 9 says, that it's appointed to man to die once and then comes judgment. Now, we're going to talk about, actually, the final talk in this series is going to be, is that fair? Is that just? It raises a lot of questions like, well, what about people who never heard the gospel? 
What about very small children or those who lack the mental capacity to understand it? Is it fair? We're going to talk about that. So as those questions emerge in your heart and in your mind, I want you to sort of set those aside. February 4th, we're going to come back. That's going to be the whole subject of my sermon. But the point I want to make this morning is this, that the Bible is very clear that this life is the opportunity for us to respond in faith to the message of Jesus Christ. There's an excellent book on the subject of heaven by Randy Alcorn. It's just simply called Heaven. He tells a story in the book about a professional singer, a woman named Ruthanna Metzger, says several years ago she was asked to sing at the wedding of a very wealthy man. According to the invitation, the reception would be held on the top two floors of Seattle's Columbia Tower, the Northwest's tallest skyscraper. She and her husband Roy were excited about attending. At the reception, waiters in tuxedos offered luscious hors d'oeuvres and exotic beverages. The bride and groom approached a beautiful glass and brass staircase that led to the top floor. Someone ceremoniously cut a satin ribbon draped across the bottom of the stairs. They announced the wedding feast was about to begin. Bride and groom ascended the stairs, followed by their guests. At the top of the stairs, a maitre d' with a bound book greeted the guests outside the doors. May I have your name, please? I am Ruthanna Metzger, and this is my husband, Roy. He searched to the M's. I'm not finding it. Would you spell it, please? Ruthanna spelled her name slowly. After searching the book, the maitre d' looked up and said, I'm sorry, but your name isn't here. There must be some mistake, Ruthanna replied. I'm the singer. I sang for the wedding. The gentleman answered, it doesn't matter who you are or what you did. Without your name in the book, you cannot attend the banquet. He motioned to a waiter and said, show these people to the service elevator, please. Now that feels like insult to injury, but okay. They had to walk back down past all the beautiful food. She realized when she got to the car, she never RSVP'd. She was busy. Besides, I was the singer. Surely I could go to the reception without returning the RSVP. Said Ruthanna started to weep, not just because she had missed the feast, but she suddenly had a small taste of what it will be like someday for people as they stand before Christ and find their names not written in the Lamb's book of life. Now I share that not to depress us, but to make the point that the scripture makes, which is we want to worship God as he is, not as we wish him to be, And as as we walk through the scripture, here's, here's the consistent testimony of scripture is that all of us will face that moment. That moment will come either at the moment of death when you meet your maker or at the time when he returns. And every person has one of two destinies. For those who don't know Jesus Christ, then the question is, do you know that you have eternal life? Because the testimony of Scripture also is that God loves you so much. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name 
of the only begotten Son of God. God loved the world so much that he sent his own Son. He calls out in the Scripture. He speaks in the Spirit. Romans 1 says even creation itself testifies to who he is. And the Scripture and the creation and Jesus Christ are calling out, listen and believe, hear and believe. Do you know that you have eternal life? 1 John chapter 5. He who believes, 1 John chapter 5, and the testimony is this that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. It's as binary as it gets. For those who know Jesus Christ, are we constantly participating in the Great Commission to share the good news that Jesus came to save us from death and to save us from hell? So the spirit separates from the body and our spirit goes to heaven or to Hades. And then thirdly, for Christians, we await the return of Christ. For Christians, we await the return of Christ. And this is what I was talking about earlier this morning. That the heaven we go to when we die actually is not our final destination. Our final destination is not as disembodied spirits in the presence of Jesus, but actually as those who receive a new body on a new earth. And so the scripture describes a resurrection of those who know Jesus. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Now, that's not about newborn babies, okay? We will not all sleep. We will not all die. We will all be changed or transformed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will all be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. One of the last scenes that we see in the book of Revelation is heaven itself descending to earth. And those who know Jesus Christ live on a renewed earth forever and ever, and ever, in a renewed body that can never get sick, that can never die again. There will be no more sin. There will be no more curse. There will be no more death, not ever again. That's our ultimate destination. About 10 years ago, Shannon and I had the opportunity to take a trip to China. And uh, what happened on the way to China, as, as often happens uh, when people fly, they lost our bags. Uh, so we got over there and we had only about a four or five day trip and it took them the entire time to find our bags. So on the last day, as we were, I guess, packing up the carry-ons that we had with us to get back on the plane, they rolled in with our bags. They found them. Now, the good news about that, the, the, the good thing that came of it was at the airport, in Beijing, as we were about to fly home, they called our name over the loudspeaker and they said, you have been upgraded to business class. Now, I had never flown business class on an international flight before, but it is like being royalty. I mean, you walk up to this deck and there are these giant chairs and I'm not making this up. Before we even sat down, they were offering us meals. They were offering us, do you want filet mignon or encrusted salmon? That's for real. They were offering red wine or 
white wine. Stretch your legs, walk around, look at the view. And I imagined and remembered my experience on the way there, right? There were about 10 people in the business class cabin. There were about 5,000 people in the coach cabin, right? They're cramming you in with poles, telling you to shut up, you know? So I'm up there and I'm like, I'm no longer a peasant. I belong with the wealthy. But you know, you begin to imagine you're actually important because you're up here. You forget it's because they lost my bags. So we're flying back across the ocean and it's just this amazing experience. And I'm thinking, man, I would love to stay in this place for a long time. So we land in Los Angeles again. And I had this fleeting thought, maybe I can just ask them to fly around a little longer because I love it here. But it wasn't home, right? Ultimately, where did I want to be? Where would my heart be at rest? In my home, in my bed, with my family. As great as it was, it wasn't ultimately home. And here's Here's the thing that the scripture tells us actually about where we go when we die. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's in the presence of God. There is no more suffering. But it's actually not the ultimate home that we're destined for. We're destined for a home where the earth will exist again as it was made to be. See that? Jesus died and he rose again, and he defeated death, and ultimately he defeated sin, and he defeated the curse. Remember Genesis chapter 3, where God said, even the ground is cursed, Adam and Eve, because of your sin. That curse will be undone, and the ground will produce enough for everybody. There won't be any more war. There won't be any more hatred. There won't be any more racial strife. There won't be any more death. There won't be any more sin. And we will have a body that will function as it was made to function. That's our home. And so for those who die now, they go immediately to be in the presence of Jesus. And then they wait for that moment. In fact, in Revelation 6, we see the saints at the throne of God. And they say, how much longer is it going to be? How much longer? They anticipate the return of Jesus and the renewal of his creation. That's the good news of heaven for those who know Jesus. The men are going to come forward here and we're going to celebrate communion this morning. Communion is an opportunity for us to reflect upon all that Jesus did to purchase us for himself, to overturn death, to overturn sin, to overturn the curse. As they come forward, I want to ask a couple of questions for us to consider. First of all, do you know you will spend eternity with Jesus? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sin and eternal life? Do you believe in his death and resurrection as the payment for your sins? Do you know you will spend eternity with Jesus? If you don't know that this morning, here's what I'd ask. Allow these elements just to pass by. And in your own heart and mind, allow this to be that morning where you say, I want to know where I'm headed. I want to know I have eternal life and say, God, I I trust you and I trust your son, Jesus, to forgive my sin and to give me eternal life. And then will you and I share the message of eternal life with those who need to hear it, with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with our family. 
Because, because you and I are men and women that God has chosen to be bearers of that message. And God is powerful enough to do whatever he wants to do without us, but he's invited us to participate in the lives of those we love, to share the message of eternal life. Let's ponder those questions as the men come forward this morning. First Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23. Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us pray and then we will close in worship. Father, we praise you this morning that in your mercy and in your grace, you've chosen to rescue us out of death. We praise you that we can have confidence in Jesus Christ, that we will have eternal life. And we praise you that you've given us a source of hope in the midst of grief. Father, I pray we would daily cling to your word and what it says about who we are and who you are and all you have done for us in Christ. We thank you for this time and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.